Welcome to Ahali, a series of conversations where I, Jan Altay, meet with ear-opening thinkers, artists, curators and designers to discuss the future of cultural production. Let's start with what Ahali means. Ahali refers to a community that flows, that doesn't have boundaries, yet nevertheless producing a meaningful togetherness. It is about a culture of being together, and Ahali generates knowledge that is not fixed and always open for newcomers. So, welcome to Ahali Conversations. This season of Ahali Conversations is supported by the Graham Foundation for Advanced Studies in the Fine Arts. And today, we are hosting Kenneth Bailey and Lori Lobenstein from Design Studio for Social Intervention also known as DS4SI, a Boston-based research and development outfit who operate in response to social justice and its resonations in public space. Kenneth and Laurie founded DS4SI in 2006 and have since set up many projects, interventions and settings where they invite activists, artists, academics, designers, dreamers, tricksters and organizations to respond to critical and urgent social problems in a light, playful, yet also very strong and propositional manner. I recently came across their theory on ideas, arrangements, effects. An incredibly clear take on how society and various goodwilling agents keep focusing on or blaming ideas such as racism and fight their effects, meaning their direct impacts on everyday life, as in discrimination, pay gap, incarceration rate and worse but miss out on the one dimension that can trigger actual change. And these are the arrangements that actually form the social realm, then that give shape to how things operate. So their focus on arrangements have also allowed them to unpack and question norms and conventions of the context they have been accustomed to work from, such as the NGO realm. Yet without detaching themselves from the core responsibility, they manage to bring in creativity, design know-how, and raise the artistic coefficient in the mix. With this, as you'll hear from them, they generate many possible keys to working in public and with publics. This episode holds an enormous amount of clues on how one can position themselves when it comes to cultural change in practice. As always, you'll find an extensive list of references that we cover in the episode notes, so make sure to check them out for further links. For the more visually oriented, we will be sharing images of works that are mentioned in Instagram. So check us out at ahali.podcast. So I want to start, first of all, by welcoming you. Thanks so much for joining us today. And maybe let's hear from where you are. I know that Lori is in Boston at the moment. Kenneth is in California but also maybe where you are as a state of mind. Well, hello. It's good to be here with you all right now. And I'm in an uncaffeinated state. Um, I started this morning at seven. After this call, I'll go get a latte. (laughs) I've just been drinking juice, so I'm still, you know, the the brain cells work the way they should be. (laughs) Morning. Uh, Thanks so much for having us. I am here in Boston and... um, yeah, our executive dog summit gets me up bright and early. So I'm up, I'm caffeinated and just really interested in, in thinking with you all because we we love thinking with folks who are looking at ideas and arrangements 
from different perspectives and different parts of the world. So thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Great to have you both. And we have Sarp, Daria and Furkan together with us. So we'll also hear from them. I think they are all in Istanbul at the moment. So thanks everyone for joining. So let's start with maybe if you don't mind mapping out this kind of triad of ideas, arrangements and effects. I mean, as I mentioned in the intro, we often get stuck in kind of finding negative effects. And also maybe we also end up blaming people more often than they deserve. How did you come to this formation? How did you come to this idea? Kenny, you want to start? I don't remember. <laughs> I was trying to, when you, when you posed the question, I was like, how did we come to that? And the first thing I thought was rethinking public kitchen, but I don't, I don't remember. How did we come to it? Well, what I remember is you were coming back from traveling to Tasmania and Australia and, and having some time to reflect on the public kitchen you had done there, but also on our work back here in the States. And you came back and you're like, Lori, we got to think about ideas, arrangements and effects and really thinking about social arrangements and physical arrangements. And then together we kind of looked at how much of our work, and this was might've been, you know, eight years ago, right? Starting to realize that as we thought about interventions, we were both helping people sense arrangements, you know, because daily arrangements just fall out of view. And then also thinking about how some of our interventions were trying to shift arrangements that were producing unjust effects, but then also this work around the, the public kitchen where the dance court was actually helping people imagine new arrangements. And so that language. Yeah, and proposed arrangements. Yeah, that language really started to resonate for us as we looked back on how we were engaging with folks doing social justice work. No, but it's good to hear that it started from practice. So it, it's not a, let's say, building up a theory and then trying it out in space, but it really started from doing stuff uh, out in public space, like the public kitchen project, and then kind of reflecting on it and then kind of building the, in a way, thinking. Totally. And also, I mean, I see it as like, I value that a lot because it's also a particular mode of sharing the kind of know-how of the knowing-how or the thinking behind uh, the projects. But maybe, okay, then let's rewind a little bit even more. Let's go to Boston in, let's say, mid-2000s or the second half of 2000s. Like, how did the DS4SI emerge and maybe taking you down memory lane can it but i think we'll come back to today as well but just to give us a kind of picture of how it all started like what was the first projects i was doing a prom i was a consultant um in the ngo sector and was up for a big promotion to become like a, a kind of higher up inside this consulting firm and would have stopped really thinking about community problems and had become more of a internal professional. Um, when I was offered the position, I pitched back another project to the leadership of the organization asking for me to be doing more cutting edge, like experimental consulting. And they're like, no, 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 if we, if we keep you, we want you in a leadership position. And so we parted ways amicably. I mean, you, that's a great way to part ways, right? Like we want you to lead or get out. <laughs> and so 
a friend of mine at the time named Cesar McDowell was running a residency, a fellowship at the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at MIT mm-hmm. called the Community Fellows Program um, inside of a outfit called the Center for Reflective Community Practice. And he heard from another friend of mine that this thing had went down and I had decided to leave and I had like three weeks or whatever. And he called me and said, come do a fellowship. And I was like, oh, that sounds nice. You know, you're leaving one thing to go do a little thing at MIT. It doesn't sound so bad, right? (laughs) And so I said, of course, I'll come. Um, And inside the studio, I meet a guy named Rob Pegler. And it turns out we both were reading the same book by Lewis Hyde called Trickster Makes This World. And we were both like geeking out over how, how much we were into this book and instantly hit it off. It's like you walk into... And you see this um, another person with the same book you literally have. You're like, oh, my God, this is, you know, meant to be. And talking to him about some of the things I was interested in studying over this year in this residency at MIT, he was like, oh, you're talking about design. And I was like, what? Like, how am I talking about design? Because I was talking about imagination and imaginations being stuck. And he was like, all this stuff you're saying is the terrain of design as, you know, like I come from a design studio. I used to work at a place called Razorfish and what you're talking about is design thinking. And I was like, oh, okay. And he was like, it's funny because you're here at MIT. There are lots of people who do that kind of thinking. You should go and meet them. And so I started going around MIT and talking to people in the concept design car studio and inside of comparative media studies and all these places and started getting these stories about how, you know, for the concept design car, they brought together theologians and soccer moms and, you know, sociologists with no direct car engineers because they wanted to have divergent thinking. And so I started picking up on all of these sort of tools and tricks. And I was like, man, those of us in the NGO civil society sector, we never do any of this kind of imaginative work or have these imaginative techniques for the things that we're trying to do in terms of solving problems in civil society. And I was like, what would it be like if we had a space that was dedicated to reconfiguring these kinds of techniques to the concerns of the social justice sector. And we started first, and then I convinced Lori to come on fairly soon after that, like within months of starting to think about these things. I was like, Lori, you you got some time, want to come help us figure this puzzle? She was like, sure, it'd be fun to play with you. And let me just interject there, Sarp, because you'll appreciate this. I was moving back to Boston in part because I was really excited to be thinking with Kenny, but also I had been a full-time youth worker for quite some time and, and doing problem solving with young people, but I wanted to be a basketball coach. So I was like, all right, Kenny, as long as I can be a basketball coach while I'm doing this design studio thing, I'm in because I got to leave the field of youth work. It happens at the same time as basketball. So uh, basketball played a part in me jumping in on the studio too. Wow. <laughs> More jump for killing the record, but damn. <laughs> <laughs> I did uh, high school basketball for the first probably four or five years of the studio. And you started Female Sneaker Fiend. That too. Yeah, that's a whole other story. I started a website called Female Sneaker Fiend because I'm a big sneakerhead. Wow, I had no idea. Okay, there's so much to... <laughs> it's fantastic. So, and then like you you decided to come together. I, I think this is amazing because it's like on the one hand, in activism or in social work, usually it's always about the urgency and it's always a kind of 
immediate reaction. I mean, like as it needs to be, you know, there's an urgency and you need to react. Whereas in this design state of mind, as you explore, you need also space and time to develop ideas. You need also kind of reflection. And like, how, how did you balance that? Or was it from the get-go structured to have that space and time? It's a great question, but I also want to include in that sort of timeline of fast to reflective, the sort of pace of the part of the social justice world that, that acts within the NGO sector, right? So coming from youth work and other community-based organizations, there are ways that you're responding quickly, but there's also ways that you get stuck in these like grant and funder cycles, right? Like, so you have to say, I know what the problem is and I know what the solution is. If you fund me, I'll do this thing. And then when you do that thing, you have to tell the funder that it worked because you want to get more money. And that's also really different than design where you're like, we've, we're thinking together about a problem and we don't need to say that we know the solution and we can think more broadly about mm -hmm. how we facilitate, you know, multiple solutions or how we think about what data we're getting instead of being like, we have to act like we already know and then act like we did it right. And these other things that even with a slower pace, aren't that reflective. So in your terminology, let's say of ideas, arrangements and effects, the whole NGO world and the kind of system is it operates on is also an arrangement that's very often taken for granted and just replicated. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and like many arrangements, they're like, it's a, it's a meta arrangement with a lot of kind of uh, overlapping arrangements within it, right? Sure. Fantastic. Now we are also, in a way, maybe simultaneously unpacking some of the kind of core thinking in this framework that you've developed. I do want to come back to your question, though, of like the balance between um, the urgency a lot of a lot of times we feel and others feel in responding to injustice and then trying to create these longer um, arcs and spaces for both reflection and design, right? Because I think it's a, it's a great question. And it's still, it continued to be something, it's funny, right? Kenny and I were actually grappling with that right this morning in terms of the sort of speed that we're trying to move into some prototyping with communities versus giving ourselves time to also even reflect on and capture what we've been learning vis-a-vis -vis productive fictions and imagining new arrangements. Let's maybe try to open that up, maybe with an example. I mean, it can be the public kitchen or do you have like some projects that keep on going or how do you deal with the time periods? of the projects that you develop? Do they always have a due date or do you imagine some of them to be longer or shorter or just a momentary? We're actually thinking, uh, I mean, they, they have different timelines, but we're actually interested in thinking about the public kitchen as one of the ones that has popped up the most often and had the most resonance with a lot of communities. Like, what does it mean to start to go from the ways that having a temporary productive fiction like a public kitchen helps communities imagine new arrangements to what would shift if we started to see a community that wanted to really hold that as a more permanent? Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that we're pitching to some of our partners and funders right now. Like, what would a public kitchen look like if it was a part of a community and how would it shift public life? And, and how would we learn from that kind of instantiation versus the more provocation um, temporary pieces that we've done from, you know, a day to two weeks or a month? And would you like to kind of describe a little bit how the public kitchen works? We would pose the question to a place or to a context if kitchens were public, like schools or libraries in the United States and ubiquitous in the same sort of sense, like, you know, spread across communities and accessible. What would that new arrangement do to social life? Like what would it, what could it produce in the world? And then from there, what in the in the designing of a productive fiction, we make enough of the kitchen 
or enough of a space so that you have a sense of what it is we're talking about, but not so much that you feel like it's determined what it is we're talking about. And then we pose imaginative questions like, if you could save 30% of the money you spend a month on food, um, and that went back into your um, monthly budget, what would you do with that money? Or what would you like to learn from other people in sort of social setting about food? Or how often do you eat alone? Like we would pose all these kinds of questions and create a community space where people could hang out with each other and enough of a cooking space that people can be learning about food, but also thinking about other things that would be part of this sort of apparatus. Um, so the first one we did in Boston, I think ran 10 days, but then we would do um, we like public kitchen we've done in lots of different parts of the world. Like in Montreal, it turned into a project called Three Mile Mill. In Tasmania, we did it twice, one as a, a, a kind of student residency with the University of Tasmania um, Architecture and Art Department, and that wound up more of an art project at the end. And then we did another one. We got invited back to Hobart by the Museum of Old and New Art and ran another iteration of Public Kitchen that was uh, instantiation in a particular community. And what we're trying to really get better at now is articulating the principles behind the difference between what a public kitchen is and what other arrangements around sort of food distribution might sort of reifying client need relationships or charity relationships. And what we're really trying to break inside a public kitchen is that we all can have a new kind of arrangement with each other and a new arrangement to food and a new arrangement to social life that doesn't sort of organize people into I'm, I'm food insecure and you're food secure, or I'm, uh, I don't, you know, I can't afford food and you can. It's like, no, those are effects of an arrangement having to do with grocery stores and other ways that we actually procure food, we can rearrange these things that make these other effects not true and put us in a new sort of set of qualities of relationship to each other. And I think a lot of our work is about trying to surface and build these new qualities of how we interact and relate through these other more material um, conventions. And I think that's the part that's the hardest to really translate, particularly in a U.S. context, because I don't think we're as trained to think about the qualities of our interactions. And, you know, so I think that's really our aesthetic mm. sauce there. It's like yeah. we really care about how people relate to each other. I think that holding the space made all the difference because it was this productive fiction that changed it from people assuming that what they that what we meant was a soup kitchen and saying that's for other people. I know somebody who should go there but never for me. And then when we held it, when it was actually something that people bumped into and interacted with, then they'd be like, oh, I'm going to bring my mom or I'm going to come cook or you should be doing this. It was that having a space is the, the productive fiction of creating enough scaffolding that it felt real, but also felt like something that was at play and that people could reimagine. I think that was really helpful. And I think in terms of the changing people's relationships to each other, in some ways, the metaphor here, when we thought about a public library, People don't say, oh, that's for someone else. That's for someone who has book insecurity or, you know, scarcity, right? Like we understand 
that a library is for all of us and we might take our kids there for a read aloud or we might borrow the latest book or whatever. But there was ways that that helped people understand that the public kitchen could also be this beautiful public resource at a time when, you know, the U.S. loves nothing more than privatizing, you know. And, and so we were really trying to think about what could we do to make a case for public life and public infrastructure as a work in progress that we might want to lean into instead of away from. Yeah. And I really like, in a way, you are challenging the existing arrangements around food distribution or redistribution of food, but also you are anchoring yourself to another format, which is kind of valuable to learn from, which is the library or the public library. I really like that referencing that you built. And in a sense, there may be already more positive arrangements with regards to uh, social justice and the use of public space that are maybe also kept just in their category, but that could be learned from mm. in other contexts, such as food. Uh, and access to food. And also I like the layering that you include. It's not only about providing, it's not only about provisions, it's not giving food to those in need, but it's more about a kind of setting for exchange in different layers that also includes sharing food. I was going to say like the, the, the other piece that we noticed and that I think Kenny talks about really elegantly is like uh, food scarcity is just one thing that our community might need, right? So we also have folks who are in our communities who feel lonely, folks who are in our communities who, you know, would want to learn how to cook better or just have company or actually fancy themselves a great cook and want to have some competition like they're on a reality show. Like there's so many ways that our public life and our social life is lacking, you know, in the United States in terms of ways that we can connect with each other. So really understanding that, uh, We need new arrangements for all of those things, not just because some people don't have food. And I have one question. Some interventions are kind of self-enclosed, like the giant black body that's walking around in the street that kind of creates a kind of coming face to face with your own, let's say, preconceptions about other bodies and how they exist in public space and fear and what have you. But with kind of longer duration and more open structures like the public kitchen, do you also incorporate kind of new ideas or iterations from the people who use it? Or do people come up with also unforeseen ways of using that space or proposing a kind of additional functions or iterations to that setting? That's such a good question. It makes me think about the third iteration that we did in, in the neighborhood that we work in. We did it in partnership with a couple who were from the neighborhood and who were really deeply involved in urban farming. And so we also did it in partnership with a greenhouse, with an NGO greenhouse that was right in Roxbury. And we we handed off some of the leadership to folks who had done the public kitchen with us before. And so I went to visit as they were doing it in the greenhouse. And I said to Kenny, I was like, the vibe is so good. You know, like it's just like people are really thinking together and talking together. And, and it wasn't so much that they had done some new thing, but like somehow their relationship to that community of urban farmers that was using the greenhouse and their relationship to the larger neighborhood, it was that greenhouse is on a land trust, right? So already another interesting arrangement. And so the ways that neighbors were coming through there really shifted. It wasn't the same as when we were out on the street stopping people and they were surprised and wondering and maybe came in and didn't. It was a little more about an, a set of neighbors who had arrangements, but were like learning from each other. And the learning was about cooking or it was just about conversations they hadn't had. And it was, Kenny, I don't know if you want to add anything, but I felt like it wasn't like, oh, they did this one new thing, but like somehow and how they held it, it shifted how people were using it. 
The thing I was going to add was from the that first iteration of that same um, iteration one of that public kitchen, not the not the neighborhood one with the 10 day one um, that, you know, like I remember one resident um, made a roast compoyo and just brought it and just offered it as part of the offering. So it was not so much that a lot we had a lot of surprising new ways that people used it, but people responded to the call. Um, like, you know, so people definitely saw it as something that they could jump in and participate in, even if what they brought was a recipe or um, a relative. But people definitely felt like it was theirs and came back and really enjoyed the social space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I know how hard this can be, because in my own practice also, I once, for example, set up a setting which was the site of uh, production of a neighborhood newspaper, like a local newspaper and the whole process of let's say opening up but also the questions around boundaries like where you hold this event what it means what are the kind of visible and invisible boundaries in people's minds about participating in such a thing and things like that so i know how hard it can be and also from i mean i've never been a kind of activist or ngo in that regard but i've been around And I've collaborated with a lot of people and there is also a kind of, in a way, fatigue, a kind of tiredness that emerges from keeping on fighting in a kind of in activist realm or maybe in an NGO realm. Maybe it's about not seeing results or seeing few results and repetitions. And I think your approach offers a kind of relief in that sense as well, because it's kind of shifts away from the it doesn't shift away from the struggle. I mean, the struggle is clearly there, but it's the mindset of like constantly fighting and maybe being frustrated versus, okay, let's think how it can be otherwise. And in that's like, I'm also curious, do you always have a kind of ideal scenario or an anticipation when you start something or do you also keep it kind of open to like see how it kind of develops? It's often open. And I think that you're really on to something in terms of how we're trying to create change by imagining new arrangements, right? Because we are always fighting arrangements that aren't working. We're fighting ideas that are harmful. We're fighting negative effects. Um, And it is an interesting translation for folks who are focused on community organizing and might ask us like, yeah, what's the policy win here? But to us, it's it's policy is just one arrangement, right? And and we try to get beyond folks who are already engaged in organizing or mediated by a community-based organization or NGO. Like, how do you take stuff right into public space so that neighbors who don't know anything about the local NGO or community organizing outfit are still able to be like walking to the bus or picking up their kids and there's a public kitchen and what's that? And then they're in it and doing something in a way that feels like uh, it might be going in a different direction to creating change, right? And it's going in a, in a new direction in terms of creating change vis-a-vis developing new relationships across neighbors who didn't know each other and what, what might they start to imagine or what might they start to advocate for. Yeah. And this like, I think you, in the book, at some point you mentioned like wilding or rewilding the social, or you wrote wilding the social. And I thought about rewilding the social because there's a lot of discussion about rewilding in relation to ecological, let's say debate. And I thought it's such a beautiful image to kind of, you know, I think about the social as like things that we consider as given, like how we can imagine to return to some better state, which will be something new, 
anyway. It's like we can never return to that state, but it will be something new. What's your practice? What, what kind of art or interventionist practice are you guys working on? Yeah, I mean, we are kind of mixed group. I've been an artist for over two decades now. And what I call setting a setting, quite in some regards similar to what you are doing. And previous works have included this like local newspaper, as I mentioned, uh, just like a public space to kind of hang around, grow stuff. And another was like an intervention that takes the form of an open recording studio. Like people can come and record their music. That's how partly this podcast idea emerged as well, because during that studio, we started also thinking about let's not only focus on music, but let's use this platform to have a space where people can discuss things. I love setting a setting. Yeah, that seems very simpatico. That's good to hear. I like it because it's also about thinking about settings, a bit like arrangements. It's also the verb, you know, the act of setting up something. I like the way it kind of the two words resonate together. So it's maybe also a good moment to open up by everybody telling a bit about their practice. Highly conversations are recorded together with participants who can join in the conversation with their questions. If you'd also like to take part in these live gatherings, visit ahaili.space and send us a line via email. Jemina is in an amazing space. Maybe she can start by her practice because she is also like empowering non-human beings, like the ones that do not have a voice of their own, like through her research. She is also part of a collective and yeah, they have a deep affinity with nature. So yeah, uh, like, would you like to kick off, Jemina? It's not like I'm living in a forest or something. I happen to be in, I'm in Kebranli and uh, in Paris. Uh, with a friend, I, we are making a book which is based on field search in a territory. It's the border of Europe and Turkey, which is a river also. And we tried to collect some stories based on animals like frogs, uh, catfish and some migrating birds. Not in a sense of tales, but how the fact that the river is a border affects their life and how it creates some crazy stories, which involves also the migrants, agriculture, some export, import stuff. Illegal animal trafficking, maybe you would put it right like that, no? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there are lots of animal traffic as well. It's frogs. There's a river and and so it makes some branches. And also there are really hardcore uh, rice agriculture. So it's a really beneficial place for frogs and birds so the local people in the villages they found a thing well in the nights they have their lamps and they go in the rivers and they just put frogs in their bags and and they sell it to europe because well they explained that there's a huge market in the village they believe that it goes to some french restaurants in paris but we did a research and we found out that there's a kind of a epidemic some fungus in europe that affects frogs. So people who want to keep the ecosystem in their ponds, uh, they just buy some frogs and they put it in it. I think there's also a dimension, which is not necessarily in your work, but that particular river is also involves the passage of like many immigrants who try to, who are trying to make their way to Europe. 
coming from Afghanistan to Africa to many different places. So it's also right in the middle of that crossing point in their journey. Yeah, for example, we have stories about catfish and immigrants in the same story because, well, uh, immigrants die in the river and there is some some soldier who told us that uh, one day he saw uh, immigrants and like under the water, like wild bodies. And, and he told us, oh, and that moment I stopped eating catfish because obviously catfish eat everything. So damn, that's a very macabre story. Like I have to interrupt, but okay, let's. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry about that. But... No, but it's real, probably real, or it's like at least a kind of anecdote that has some reality check in it because it's like it's also a quite like it's site of very huge human drama as well. So that's yeah. So uh, we went to this area and we happened to find all those stories and after that we we needed to make a connection between them because we were a bit shocked too and we didn't know all these relationships with animals agriculture all that stuff so uh, we chose to just tell it as if we are kind of naive observers and at the end of the book it will become a bit like a nightmare you know it's like the story that Eldorado you know Inca people told a story about a mountain where there is a lot of gold just to make the colonizer lost their way in the jungle. So uh, we were a bit lost too. I mean, we heard all those scary stories and we were a bit lost too at the end. So we tried to give that sense in a book, like we were crushed uh, under all those information. Thanks so much. And it's also reminding us that there is always a kind of non-human animals that are part of the story and also a culture, as you mentioned, plants and many things. And this is purely out of curiosity, but in the urban context, I don't know how it is in the States, but had there been any moments where you encountered with animals, Loria and Kenny, in some of your works? or I think that what it made me think of actually, which is far from our work, but that that understanding and, and interest in the relationships in a particular space of animals and humans, instead of separating us, reminded me of Lagoon, have you ever read that? By um, Okorafor. Science fiction takes place in Lagos. Her beginning question to herself is like, why do humans always think that aliens are going to come and talk to us? So the precipitating, the start of the story is aliens coming to Earth, but they don't talk to humans. They, they talk to some of the, some of the animals in the, in the ocean. So you might, you might enjoy that. Sounds good. I didn't know this book. So maybe... I mean, if anybody has questions or comments to Kenya and Lori. All right, I got this one question. Makani Tembo introduces your work by referring to San Ra. So to quote her, as one of my heroes, boundary buster and culture provocateur, San Ra would say space is the place. San Ra transformed space as a way to break way out of the confines of stereotypical blackness and claim the cosmos as its home. So some contemporary acolytes of San Ra, like the Ezra Collective from the UK, emphasize the importance of maintaining joy. Like they have this groundbreaking album called You Can't Steal My Joy. To quote them, you can steal a lot of things from us, our ability to travel freely, our access to education, our right to a level playing field, even our ability to live, but you can't steal our joy. So do you agree that positivity and free vibing can indeed be employed as a practical mean of emancipation? 
or let's say to counter moves to fight special injustice. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think it has to be part of it. Sorry, Sarp. I was totally expecting Kenny to say yes. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> well, could you unpack? I definitely think, you know, affect and sort of paying attention to our own affective reality as a register for social life and and a place where we can actually control our own affective um, matters. It turns, you know, turns back on your body in lots of different ways. So I don't think I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish and say like, um, don't worry, be happy or anything like that, you know, collapsing. But I do think that it makes sense to attend to our own atmospheres, to attend to our affective state and to attend to not sort of allow the ways in which Black life might be arranged to then allow, make that arrange our own relations to each other. And so I think in that sense, you know, constantly looking for those moments of encounter that bring joy is a, you know, in a small sense, an act of, of resistance. Maybe just continuing from joy, because in the beginning, like the part we didn't record, you were mentioning that this idea of switching, thinking about basketball courts, but turning, uh, like proposing dance courts. Is that something that realized or is one of the ideas? Would you like to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, we've done the dance court, not as much as as Public Kitchen, but it is similar in terms of people's ability to to just grab it right away. You know, so the the last instantiation of DS4SI, um, which was also in Boston, was across the street from a basketball court and some tennis courts and a baseball diamond, you know, public infrastructure. And uh, so we did the dance court there a couple of times. And in terms of joy, like it's such an easy translation, right? People are like just walking by and there's a DJ and people are dancing. And then some folks came with their families and their kids were like chalking on the court. And then it brings up some of the other questions. When you think about setting a setting, like, why can't we have this? You know, Boston is an extremely uh, permitted space. And by permitted, I mean the opposite, right? Like you need permits to do everything. And particularly if you're in any of the communities of color, like folks of color are the least likely to get permits. You know, so even when artists can pull off a fun little dance studio and get the hookup for a little sound permit, that doesn't mean that the neighbors could do that. And it doesn't mean that the infrastructure is there such that you could do it easily and just say, we want to have our Friday night party. Or, you know, when we think about having a dance court in a public kitchen simultaneously, as we start to think about what would shift if we had an ecology of new arrangements, like you could have someone, you know, cater your party from the public kitchen and have it at the dance court or what else might grow out of multiple new arrangements that make public life more public and more joyful. Because some of those pieces of joy in our lives are so privatized. You know, it's like in my kitchen and the people that I cook with and for, or, you know, at a house party and, you know, the people who I already know, but how do you create spaces that are for everyone? And sometimes the strangeness of the space, the fact that it's a new arrangement makes it more welcoming because It isn't like the basketball court where it is already for a set of people that play basketball. It's not actually for anyone. It's for anyone who feels confident playing basketball in public. So when you have a public kitchen, then it's like, what's that? Wait, what do you mean? And, you know, in some ways there's the familiarity of the smell or the process of cooking or the dance or the music, but, but there's the newness of the form that can make it feel like, Hey, could I rent this space? 
for a party or, you know, like what are some new ways that that newness adds to people's ability to imagine not just the new infrastructure, but themselves in it? I think that not just imagining the new infrastructure, but imagining yourself within it or participating in it is like worth underlining. Yeah. We started thinking about, we're calling it like public making, like more than just the infrastructure of having an event or a public kitchen or setting a setting, like how do we create spaces that help people collectively activate the space? And become a public as well. Yeah, right. And so it isn't about a public event that I go to with my girlfriend or my friends and have a good time, but like I might go to and then meet other people or engage in new ways or try something new. We've been really thinking about that in our in public festivals as like a festival of public making. And what would happen if we put sort of unusual things together, like a panel on spatial justice while you're actually in downtown, which is a really commercial space, but you have people out there teaching dance or making stuff for free. Or you could do your own printmaking or you could, you know, what sorts of kind of connections of events might lend themselves to public making and more of a sense of collective healing or collective joy versus my personal self-help, self-healing project. That sounds very interesting. And in a sense, it's like this also going back to this kind of idea of, let's say, how certain things are prescribed or we subscribe to them in a sense by agreeing in their formats. But once you start describing, then it allows you to write new or even rescribe the kind of social fabric and formats of activities. And it's not starting from scratch completely, but it's also kind of shifting the frame. Yeah, it's a little, right, it's it's a little provocative, right? Trying to shift the frame, trying to even point out that there is a frame. Yeah. <laughs> trying to, you know, that, that ability to help folks sense arrangements, sense that they've been framed in a particular way or that the space has been framed in a particular way. And that notion that we try to, in choosing the word arrangement, remind people that our world's are arranged and that they could be rearranged. That's beautiful. And also we participate in these arrangements and we are sometimes very happy with them either or with some of some dimensions of them. I mean, you mentioned your interest in sports and sneakers and things like that. So we also enjoy some aspects of that reality. It's not completely about, let's say, imagining a society from scratch, but it's also about noticing the kind of shortcomings and also the violences embedded and then think or try to think how they can be altered. Yeah. And I think in the ways that we and y'all are trying to kind of create new possibilities in our in our current context, right? So I think there's notions of utopia that very much involve like buying land in the woods and starting from scratch in ways that might be really powerful and questioning what's existing, but that are not going to talk to a sneakerhead who's never going to go off and live in the woods because their sneakers would get dirty and they couldn't buy new ones. You know, there'd be no internet. They're like, I'm in this game, this sneaker game. But like we had one of our community members who helped us plan our first public kitchen actually, you know, (laughs) was like, oh, I know this person who's doing the sneaker designing. Could we have them come? We're like, yeah, totally. Right. So how do you create these places that help us imagine a new, but don't feel like you aren't engaged, right? In ways that are both positive and negative in the existing world. And I think, how do we continue to sort of stay on that edge of of helping imagine, but also understanding that we bring a lot of baggage, a lot of joy, a lot of injury, a lot of harm, you know, like we, we come as these humans that are really familiar with how we arrange ourselves. That's amazing. Are there any other questions or comments? 
I'm dying to ask another thing to Lori. It's about spacing since you brought up that you considered coaching basketball. So spacing is perhaps like the most fundamental knowledge that a player should learn much before ball handling or anything else. And it is also like perhaps about respecting like another player's space, especially from your team to contribute to the same cause. Like how do you reflect through the knowledge of, let's say, spacing? And do you think children or like any other communities uh, like would be rendered to the special justice knowledge? Do you think this knowledge would be rendered more accessible through these kind of daily examples? Or how would you reflect spacing through the purview of your practice? That's a great question. And as a coach, particularly coaching young players, it's really hard to coach spacing, right? Like the youngest players I've coached, they're the ones that like want to run up on their teammate with the ball and literally just take it from them, right? Because they want their turn <laughs> with the ball. But I, th- I think it gets to me, it's funny, we're talking basketball, but when people talk to Kenny about dance, I often say like basketball is my dance, right? Like I'm not really out on the dance floor, but like definitely out on the basketball court. And something that I think spacing shares in both of those elements is choreography, right? So when we think about public spaces and spatial justice, sometimes thinking about city life is about existing choreographies and who gets to hold space in public, who gets to say, you know, in some neighborhoods, there's that parking day, right? Where you get to turn a parking space into a park. You know, who gets to do that is people that look like me. Oh, that would be so fun. I want my kids to have a little park. I turn, you know, but like, The young people of color who I'm coaching in basketball, they couldn't even hang out in that space without getting harassed and literally moved out of that space, right? So when we think about spacing and spatial justice, there's what you're getting at, Sarp, which I think is some of that collectively being able to see each other and the strengths that we bring and understand that when Kenny gets to kick a leg up on the dance court and Lori gets to play basketball and, you know, then we get to go cook, that brings something, helps us bring our best game. Right. But then also, how do we create spaces that acknowledge that we are also coming as, you know, the player off the bench who thinks they need to shoot as soon as they get in the game because they might only be there for a minute, you know, right? Like we're coming with people who aren't seen or aren't given space. And so when they get that space or that moment, they want to seize it in ways that can feel really big. So how do we create containers that people can really feel seen and and start to feel it in a way that then they make space for each other? And I think about a good friend of the studio who actually worked with us on one of our first public kitchens. And, you know, the same person can come sometimes with so much injury and sometimes with so much grace. And when she's feeling abundant and seen, she's one of the best. She was the one that brought the sneakerheads to the public kitchen. And then there's other times when she's like thinking that we're not even going to invite her. Right. So there's that sense of spaciousness that's also about our own like unequal experiences of being seen, being valued, even being safe. That was beautiful, Lori. Thank you so much. <laughs> Good, because I don't know if it just wound everywhere. And, and I was still only staying with a human. So if we get to the animals like that, they us in a whole another direction. Lori, thank you so much. You've been very generous with your answers. I'm sure you're a great point guard. <laughs> I love playing point guard. My two favorite things are a good assist and a good stuff. I love stuffing people. You sound so as well. <laughs> Daria, Furkan, do you have any questions or comments? Uh, also, like talking about giving space. I might have a 
comment, not a question, but like I'm generally more pessimistic about this, at, especially at the moment. About and I don't want to spread my pessimism to you guys because this has been a very joyful talk. It's a it's a pessimistic moment, really. You can absolutely. <laughs> With everything going on, and especially, and I don't want to mention COVID because it's all about it's all, all we talk about now. But like, especially after COVID, I feel like this sort of this feeling of community has been really I mean difficult. It's it's not sort of a surprise. We've all been confined into our homes, and sort of, uh, and other people weren't. With everything going on, like there's this sort of like everybody everybody's lives are individualized, mm-hmm. and everybody is sort of very much. Minding their own business, and mm-hmm. it's very much a business about sort of the career and you know where I got the in life and that those kind of questions I think have more than building community or commonality. I think it's really good to hear you talk about these sort of projects and sort of interventions, and 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 then I do see hope in that direction. But from a more general perspective, I'm I'm very much pessimistic about where we are headed, and it would be very great to hear your thoughts about like how do you cope. With that feeling, if you feel the same, I, I do absolutely feel pessimistic sometimes, you know, and and I feel pessimistic about our future as a species, you know, and <laughs> that just is overwhelming, you know, and, and at the same time, I'm like, do we really deserve this Earth? I mean, like really, like humans, but the amount of pain that it would take to go through to to have the Earth survive without humans is is really unfathomable, right? Um, and I, I think when I try to focus on our work and the notion of creating change. It doesn't feel like, you know, I can't imagine we can get there one public kitchen at a time or one dance court at a time, but at the same way, just the notion that you all heard about ideas, arrangements, effects, or, you know, you could imagine a public kitchen in your neighborhood. Then we start to think about how do these ideas inspire each other? What do we take away? And how does that kind of keep us moving? Even when we don't know, right? Like we didn't know y'all were thinking about these things. We didn't know, setting a setting. We didn't know, you know, so like, how do we continue to grow and share these ideas? And, and how do we understand that joy is, is not irrational and it's not something that we can't have until we've solved everything, right? Like there are, you know, communities throughout time that have had to experience or just made things happen despite hardships that I've never faced, right? So, so saying like, where is the energy and power there? How do we create space for it? And what changes in our bodies and in our capacities and in our communities when we create spaces where we can breathe and laugh and raise little ones and have them make us laugh. And I think that it's, you know, it's all true, you know, and and there are days where some parts feel impossible, but, you know, getting to meet you all or getting to do our next in public, thinking with artists who are thinking about collective healing or attending or, you know, Kenny and I, when the weather is good, like a good design studio session is spending eight hours smoking meat in my backyard, you know, so it's getting to those other things, you know, <laughs> besides just the work at hand and the urgency of that. That's a lovely answer. Thank you very much. That's, that's what I felt tonight as well. Can't spend too much time with grownups. It's either little ones or other species. Because when you're just with grown-ups, it's really hard. And also don't spend too much time alone. <laughs> yeah, that's true too. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Thanks so much, Lori. And I don't know, maybe this is like the final call, if there are any final comments or questions. I'm really glad to see summits I saw in, at the website. Well, my question is about the linguistic layer of PS4SI. I'm mostly uh, working through physical and social engagements, but 
you are also producing written material as well. So I'm curious, is the practical strategy to record the ideas or this is part of your creating process? And how does public space and textual space talk to each other in your practice? Uh, that's a great question. One of the things that is just kind of personal, like Kenny and I love writing together and we can't actually build shit. So there's times when we're like, this is something we can actually do. Like all of our actual large scale interventions we do in partnership, right? Like we need chefs, we need builders, we need dancers, we need, you know, and we can write, we can just get out there and write. So that helps us sometimes, especially when we're feeling like we really want to respond to something, you know, writing about social justice in a time of the pandemic. I forget what the piece was. It was something that we felt really moved to do and that we could do faster than creating or imagining a new arrangement. Um, but the flow really goes in both directions. You know, I think about our social emergency response center, which is one of our biggest interventions, you know, and the only one that we really turned into a kit and, and really put out there so that folks could do it around the world without us. But that started with writing. It started with responding to Ferguson and saying, we are not all understanding that we're in a social emergency. Like, let's act like we need some tools to understand that we're in a social emergency. So that went from a case for social emergency procedures, which was just written to um, a mini cardboard structure that was like how to recognize when you're in a social emergency. And some of our colleagues at the University of Orange in Orange, New Jersey, were like, we need a little more leadership here. Like we need more infrastructure. And that's when we started to think about, well, there's this thing called emergency response centers when we have a tornado or hurricane. Like maybe we need to use that metaphor as a way to help people understand that we're in a social emergency. And that's where the Cirque grew out of. So in that case, it started as writing and then became an imagined arrangement. Um, but sometimes we're, you know, going both ways, you know, where our thinking about spatial justice comes out in writing and then it comes out in a public kitchen or it comes out in a public festival. So it's a great question. And I think the book is an example, right? There's things that we did and then reflected in the book. And now there's things that we get to learn or, or be in communities with folks like y'all because someone read it. And how does that shape, you know, our next location for productive fiction or, you know, for the work in partnership with y'all or in partnership with somebody who hears this, right? So it's kind of a constant back and forth, but it is a way that having the language of the book helped us contextualize, you know, this very different things that we've been doing. Yeah, that's a fantastic question and a great response again. Thank you, Laurie. Which just maybe leads to one final question that I really want to ask, because you mentioned about competencies and abilities, and I think being a strong suit for you. And then that led me to think about the question of forms, both in like visual output of the work and also kind of form giving, so to say, which is historically a or great dimension of design as well. And in the context of, let's say, more social justice movements and activism, it's more a DIY or, let's say, lo-fi kind of formal existence because it's about bringing together, making do, and things like that. Uh, so I'm just curious, like, to what degree you are attentive to form and where are your formal inspirations, in a sense? I mean, it can change from project from project, but still, yeah. Oh, that's a great question. You know, it changes somewhat, but I do think you're on to something in terms of how we think about both form and aesthetic, mm -hmm. um, because we have been very wary of, of an aesthetic that feels very commercial, right? Like we love an aesthetic that feels DIY, that feels made by hand, that feels replicable. Like we want to break down that fourth wall and have someone see something we're doing and be like, I'm going to do that in my neighborhood. 
and it might be smaller or might go in a different direction, but it feels doable. And so sometimes we're caught in that tension between how do we scale something up? How do we actually get to imagine at the scale of a stadium or a city versus a neighborhood? But also in that process, how do we bring people along and continue to have it feel like something that people could borrow or steal or twist or, you know, tweak in in ways that feel accessible. So I think that one of the things that design has taught us is that there are a lot of decisions, right? There's a lot of intention in when you create a space like a public kitchen or a Cirque to, you know, thinking about like who is in the space, which might not be a question of form, but it's so important if you want people to feel welcome in a space. If you don't have teenagers in a space, they're just not going to come, you know, like they're not going to come to something that's all adults. Like that is not that interesting. Right. Or if you don't have folks of color in a space, if you have a bunch of white artists doing something in a community of color, that's not a good look either. That doesn't make people want to step in. They see that way too often. So I think there's intention about not only what the space looks and feels like, what it smells like, who's already there, who's inviting you in, how are you invited to be a part of it? Um, I think about that, like form is, is really an important piece there. Material, font, sound, like all of those things. And also social form, as you mentioned, how people even like are positioned in space and also who is there and things like that as well. Mm -hmm. We also think about the form of evaluation, you know, because, because we're often doing this with funding. They're like, well, can you tell us like, what was the effect? And so many of those tools are things that arrange people, right? Like, oh, you went through this circ or this public kitchen. Now, can you tell us like how you're different or how you're better or why your neighborhood's better? And no one asked me that after I play basketball. You know, I, I play basketball because I love playing basketball. They don't say like, now tell me how you're healthier. Yeah. <laughs> or tell me how you understand spacing differently. You know, it's these things come out of that, but are not about me, someone telling me that I, you know, had a certain kind of experience. Yeah, no, that's also like a really important point. So before wrapping up, maybe just quickly, we can expand on that because I think in art context is rightfully a taboo, so to say, evaluation. But especially when you do work in public space or that in a way involve also public entities, then this question of evaluation or like, did it work? How did it work? Did it fail? That kind of questions become seeping into the whole assemblage. And in the book, you also refer to these processes of evaluation. So maybe do you, would you like to expand it a little bit more, how you feel about it and like how you deal with it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very much a work in progress. I think what we're really itching to do more of is evaluate our work or help folks evaluate their work across ideas, arrangements, effects, because mostly we're asked to do it in the realm of effects. But like, if we do a productive fiction, if, you know, what ideas changed when people came through? Did they imagine a new arrangement or did they have a different idea about their neighborhood? What other new arrangements might have grown out of it in that sense of like adjacent possibility? Like if we had a public kitchen, we could have a different kind of public garden or a different kind of public work. And then what effects might grow out of that? So I think we're really trying to add some complexity and terrain in that evaluation, but also thinking about how how do we talk to people and how might we follow up with people? Because some of that stuff we never know, right? Like people come to the public kitchen or whatever, and then they go off and do something and we don't necessarily know that they did it. Occasionally we get lucky and they come back and they're like, oh yeah, I did this whole creativity lab back in Florida. And we're like, you did? You didn't even tell us, like, tell us how to go. But as we think about evaluation, how do we also get better at kind of 
without tracking people saying, where did you take these ideas or how did they grow? Or did you try something after you did this? And I think we have a lot of curiosity and not a lot of really experience yet and being able to follow that and, and, and tell that whole story. That's great. And also this taps into the questions of growth and scaling and how it can kind of replicate in a different sense. So it doesn't become a kind of franchise, but it becomes a kind of more contextualized, located versions. And we had in one of our previous episodes, we had Katrin Böhm, who runs as her project is like a beverage company. That's the work. It's called Company Drinks. And they go gleaning, they like they make the drinks and then they display and sell it and what have you. It's very interesting. You should check that out if you have time. I will. And Katrin told us that there is a kind of Italian group that started this Comunita Frizzante and they totally took the model and replicated in the Italian context, which of course changes in context. So that's awesome. That kind of interrelations and that kind of translations or transliterations, I think, are a good way of thinking about how such projects can relate to growth or scaling and things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, you know, just to have more infrastructure to start to see, you know, see your cousins in other countries or see things that grew out of something that was like a next generation would be really exciting and to be able to make that public as well, right? Like, does that exist? You know, like in what ways are people sharing that already with Instagram or on websites? But like, how do you kind of build that appetite and capacity to imagine new arrangements and point to the ways that people are doing that? This was lovely, Laurie and Kenny. Thanks so much for taking the time. And thanks everyone for joining today. Gemini, Furkan, Daria, Sarp. As always, really great to have you all. Thank you. I feel like we just got to know good friends. And now I'm like, I want to hang out more. <laughs> we definitely will and should. That's all for today. Ken, thanks for thanks for making it happen. Thanks for being patient with us and getting us uh, lined up on our different coasts. <laughs> um, it's great to meet you all. And I'm so excited to continue to, to think with y'all. Fantastic. Same here. See you on the court. <laughs> And so we've come to the end of another episode. The role of productive fictions in fighting limiting arrangements, working collectively in public space, and looking at useful arrangements in different contexts with an eye to learn from them, were some of my key takeaways from this session. So were the importance of joy, not fearing action, and always being open for encounters. These are like the core elements that Kenny and Lori seem to work with. Having enough scaffolding, so that the setting feels real enough, but also leaving room for imagination and participation is another lesson that stays with me. DS4SI, they think deep and empathically about how folk will come across the spaces they make and the people they assemble. Make sure to check out the show notes as there's an extensive list of links and information down there. You can also visit our website, ahali.space, or get some visual insights on Instagram via ahali.podcast. Ahali Conversations are produced by Asla Altay and Sarprank Özer, with Daria Yıldız as our associate producer. This episode was engineered by Arda Karaburçak, with music by Group Ses. The episode is also supported by a Moon and Stars project grant from the American Turkish Society. I guess it goes without saying, but we really appreciate you for spreading the word and supporting us by subscribing, rating, following, or simply letting a friend know. 
This was a highly conversations with me, John Altai, and we hope to see you next time. Thank you.